0: When I was at school, RE lessons were called Scripture. We had Scripture third period on a Wednesday, let's say. And to be honest, I can remember very little from them, except on the one occasion when Miss MacDonald, my Scripture teacher, got things badly wrong. This was when she corrected an essay my 13-year-old self had written in which I stated that Christmas was a more important festival than Easter. She didn't agree, which was just unbelievable. (laughs) Do you get presents at Easter? No. I rested my case. As I grew older, and particularly after coming to faith, it finally dawned on me that the Bible seemed to agree with Miss MacDonald. Only two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, cover the birth of Jesus, but all four cover the events of Easter and, to a greater or lesser extent, those of the Sunday preceding it, which we now call Palm Sunday. I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear that I now agree with both the Bible and Miss MacDonald. (laughs) For the purpose of today, I'm going to read the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem from Luke's Gospel because I think it captures not only the palm frond waving jubilation of the proceedings but also speaks of the implicit tragedy and sadness to come. I'll also refer to some passages and verses in John which help to clarify things a little. So, please turn to, or access electronically, Luke 19, verses 29 to 44, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. I've called this talk, Palm Sunday, The Hollow Victory. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its omas asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, and encircle you, and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Setting the scene a little, the crowds have been increasingly drawn to both Jesus' teaching and his miracles and judging from what we read in the Gospels, have grown hugely. Many of the parables Jesus used and the stories he told immediately precede this account of Palm Sunday in Luke's Gospel. In the Gospel of John, however, the event which immediately precedes the rather truncated account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Most of you will know this story, of course, But for those who may not, Jesus is brought word that one of his oldest friends, Lazarus, is very sick and, implicitly, dying. Realizing, as nobody else does, that Lazarus is already dead by this time, he waits two days and then goes to Bethany, um, where Lazarus was from, specifically to raise him from the dead. None of which he makes clear to his disciples at that point. Two things about this are therefore incomprehensible to them. The first is that he would consider going to Bethany at all, given that it lies a mere two miles from Jerusalem and religious leaders are already baying for his blood. Why deliberately put himself in danger? And the other is that Jesus says he has to go to wake Lazarus up because he's fallen asleep. This is a nonsense to his disciples who just say, well, if he's asleep, chances are he'll wake up by himself. As you would, wouldn't you? Anyway, they go, and the rest is a matter of biblical record. So read all about it in John 11. The point is that this was incredible, jaw-dropping, radical, dangerous stuff. Because many, many people were eyewitnesses to it. And when they heard, the religious authorities were extremely troubled by it. John 11 verses 47 and 48 says, Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. I emphasize this because the context of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is really important if we are going to even begin to understand the turmoil and danger into which Jesus deliberately walked, knowing beyond doubt what awaited him in a way that nobody else, even his closest friends, did. The scenes of euphoria described in this passage from Luke are familiar to us. Lots of happy people, witnesses to miracles that were beyond belief, literally, waving palm fronds, yelling, dancing, singing, Quoting Psalm 118, where, in verse 38 of this chapter, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that went down like a lead balloon. Teacher, rebuke your disciples, the Pharisees say. Yes, they were scared of the power Jesus seemed to wield over the people. And yes, there were elements of self-interest there for them, as we see from the quote from John then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. There are often elements of self-interest in our dealings with one another, aren't there? But they were also genuinely shocked, genuinely appalled, and genuinely affronted. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey writes, the Pharisees had often blanched at Jesus' boldness in unilaterally forgiving sins and in calling God his own father. His seeming disregard for the Sabbath scandalized them. Moses' law made Sabbath breaking a capital offense. Jesus represented a threat to the law, capital L, the sacrificial system, the temple, kosher food regulations, and the many distinctions between clean and unclean. Listening to the radio on Friday night, this still absolutely blows me away. I heard that somebody in Germany had described Angela Merkel as the worst chancellor Germany has ever known. (laughs) Who knew? Angela, Adolf. Tough choice. Well, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, this is very tenuous, but hey, it was funny. Jesus was indeed the worst thing Israel had ever known. Jesus was a serious threat. And in verse 38, the people refer to him as king. King, riding into Jerusalem in distinctly travel-stained clothes rather than royal robes, on a donkey instead of in a chariot, surrounded not by a victorious army, but by a ragbag of the lame, the blind, the poor, the uneducated, and children, for crying out loud. To the Pharisees, this was all nonsense at best. But really, it was blasphemy, pure and simple. Later, I want to talk a bit about fear, wrong expectations, misunderstandings, ensuing resentments, and the mixed blessing of hindsight, which we can all see from this passage. But in verse 39, Jesus is rebuked by the Pharisees for failing to keep his followers in order, for by their way of it... Allowing them to misquote the Psalms and by, to, to ascribe to Jesus a status which was not his to own. What is his response? I tell you, he replied if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Well, that's not exactly placatory, is it? Jesus does not seem intent on smoothing ruffled feathers or pouring oil on troubled waters. Hitherto, Jesus has shunned attention and personal adulation. But here, in this so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he lets them yell in Yancey's words. Why? Because Jesus sees clearly that his time has come, not in the way the crowds think, in victory and triumph, but in ignominy and death. The victory, as we know, will come later with his resurrection But nobody has understood that at this point in the proceedings. Only Jesus understands that. So it doesn't matter if they scream and shout and rejoice because God's plan for the redemption and salvation of all humanity is underway in ways that none of the crowd foresee. It's too late to turn back, and therefore none of the adulation and the frond waving really means very much. This is the hollow victory. The real victory will come later. What is striking in the last few verses of this passage is that Jesus pays little attention to the adulation of the crowd, but instead grieves for Jerusalem. It is too late for Jerusalem, he says, if you had only known what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The religious authorities, the powers that be in Jerusalem, are not going to get it. It's too late for them. And the inevitable consequences of not getting it, of basically refusing to get it, is that they will suffer at the hands of their enemies. They will suffer in ways that they needn't have done had they only recognized the time of God's coming to them. Verse 44. Right now, in other words. So what is it? exactly that nobody gets the adoring crowds don't and can't understand the true nature of Jesus's victory and the religious authorities refuse to accept that Jesus just might be the promised Messiah there are two kinds of not getting it here it seems to me those who can't and those who won't But what Jesus sees is that those those who can't get it, the disciples, the adoring crowds, eventually will because their ignorance is not willful. It's not deliberate. Although they are not going to get what they think, a new king of Israel, a victor over the Romans, a for now solution, they will soon realize that Jesus is a forever solution, the forever means of being reconciled to God. The picture is much much bigger than they thought, and than they think at this stage on that first Palm Sunday. The religious authorities, however, are another matter. They have too many vested interests to get it, even to begin to consider that Jesus might be the Messiah they've been promised. It reminds me of the rich young ruler in the previous chapter of Luke, who wants to follow Jesus, but not if it means giving up his wealth. His vested interests are too important to him. When I first came to faith in Jesus, the choice I faced was not between whether Jesus was or was not the Son of God and therefore my Lord and Saviour. I was convinced he was indeed all those things. My choice was whether I was going to accept that truth and all that it would entail or whether I was going to walk away from it Because of the discomfort which would inevitably ensue, knowing that I turned my back on the truth. For a couple of years, I tried to have my cake and eat it, but eventually I knew I couldn't do that anymore. The idea that I could grieve Jesus, who had died for me and redeemed my life, was too much. I let go and let God, as the saying goes and I've never regretted it. I've fought, and I've struggled, and I've sulked, but I've never regretted it. The Pharisees, like the rich young ruler, counted the cost and refused to pay it. Their short-term self-regard meant that they forwent the possibility of an eternity with God. Isn't that a bit harsh of God? He loves us, the Bible says. It is not his will that any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The truth is, though, that God will love us in his way, not ours. And don't we walk away from the love of others sometimes when it doesn't look like what we think it should look like? Do we still know we're loved when somebody says no to us? Sometimes, as in this passage for the Pharisees, love and self-interest conflict. In the immortal words of Sir Mick Jagger, and I'm pretty sure I've quoted him before, you can't always get what you want. Preach it, Sir Michael. In one commentary I read, the author talked of Palm Sunday sometimes feeling like a dress rehearsal for Easter Sunday, where we forget the intervening horror of Good Friday, the humiliation, the torture, the excruciating death of the only perfect man who's ever lived. We don't hold a Good Friday service in the Kingdom Vineyard, but what we do do is to participate, as Toby was mentioning earlier, in the Good Friday pilgrimage around St. Andrews. We'll do that again this coming Friday, starting at 4 p.m. in St. Mary's and ending at 6 p.m. at St. Mary's on the Rock. We make our way around the town, listening to readings and teachings and praying together as a body of diverse believers. You're all welcome to come to all of it or part of it, And you won't lose your salvation if you don't come to any of it. But if you are interested, do see me afterwards and I can tell you roughly where we will be when so that you can join in later if you're unable to get to the start of it. This is beyond doubt a hugely important part of Jesus's story. We need to know it and to try to understand it as best we can, given that unlike those who were actually there, we have no choice but to view it in the light of what we know came afterwards so what does it have to say to us now how does it key into who we are and how we live the thing to realize that this is that this whole event the entry of jesus into jerusalem on palm sunday is riddled with fear and misunderstanding and false expectation although the fear is not explicit in this particular passage from luke it is in other accounts of the final weeks of jesus's life on week of jesus's life on earth Various verses in all four Gospels speak of of the fact that the Pharisees feared the multitude. They feared the crowd, people power. Elsewhere in John 12, verses 42 and 43, it says, Many, even among the leaders, believed in him, in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. The disciples feared going anywhere near Jerusalem because they thought that that Jesus, and therefore they, might die. In fact, Thomas is quite arch about it. We might as well go then together, guys. Die together. Let's go. Fear is a common human emotion. Even Jesus had a wobble in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he gives voice to a preference not to go ahead with God's plan, if at all possible. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In Jesus' case, obedience triumphs over fear. But let's not pretend it wasn't a tough call. And please, let's not pretend that sometimes what the Lord asks of us is not also a tough call. Sometimes fear is a life-saving emotion, but on the whole, it is debilitating. We fear pain, both physical and emotional. We fear rejection. We fear ridicule. We fear making a choice in case we make the wrong choice. So we keep as many options open as possible, choosing indecisiveness over commitment to a particular course of action or even to a particular person. I believe the opposite of fear is not fearlessness, it is trust. If Jesus' commitment to his father's plan, demonstrated by this willing journey toward his own death, doesn't prove his trustworthiness, I don't know what does. Trust is not necessarily pain-free. It will involve vulnerability and it will involve risk. But... Never one to miss an opportunity to trot out an old vineyard favourite. Faith is spelt. Jesus is a lot better at defending our hearts and minds than we are. But we have to trust him first. Otherwise we deny him access. There is no proper healing and no lasting blessing if we deny Jesus full access. That's fine, we all say. I trust Jesus. There's other people I don't trust. The problem is that Jesus often calls on us to trust him through trusting others. That is why we're called into community. That's why we're church. We can't always get what we want. Misunderstanding. As we've already seen, nobody has really clocked what's going on on this first Palm Sunday. The people think they're going to get one thing, and five days later, this victorious king they were all shouting about is ignominiously and hideously dead. Their world implodes. Whether or not it's the same people who celebrate Jesus on Palm Sunday who then bathe for his blood on Good Friday is unclear. What is clear is that one thing is expected and another thing happens. Equally, the disciples are in the dark. In John's account of the same event, he writes that it was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized the things that were done to him in what we now call Holy Week had been prophesied in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. Misunderstanding is a common human characteristic. We all misunderstand one another from time to time and I am sure most of us have been mortified at some time or another when someone has taken something we've said in entirely the wrong way and given it a spin we never intended. So how do we avoid this? We keep very short accounts, and of course, we learn to say sorry. When Toby and I have done marriage preparation with engaged couples, the one thing we ask them to remember above all else is to keep short accounts, to talk to one another, not to allow misunderstanding and resentment to build and to fester. That is a biblical precedent of force of course, and applies by no means only to marriage. Matthew 18 verse 15 says this, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him, work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. Conversely, Matthew 5 verses 23 and 24 says, if you enter your place of worship, And about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Leave immediately, go to this friend, and make it right. Is it just me, or are we generally better at the first than we are at the second? I believe the antidote to misunderstanding is trust. Trust is not necessarily pain-free. It will involve vulnerability, and it will involve risk. Just as we have to learn to trust Jesus, we have to learn to trust one another. There is no proper healing and no lasting blessing if we don't trust one another. False expectation is apparent throughout the passage, as we've seen. Nobody other than Jesus foresaw what was coming. I'm not going to labor the point much further, but it is clear in the immediate wake of Jesus' death, That things had not gone according to plan. That Jesus' followers had dispersed and that his disciples were in hiding. They categorically disbelieved the women who claimed to have seen Jesus in the garden after his resurrection. It had all gone pear-shaped, they'd been deluding themselves, and that was that. Expecting too much from one another or the wrong things from one another can lead to disappointment and resentment. Guess what? Resentment and disappointment are common human characteristics, but they're also very unattractive ones. The disappointment, I mean, is disappointment with others when they fail to meet our expectations. This is, arguably, the kind of disappointment the disciples felt before they met the risen Christ again. None of us is immune to experiencing both resentment and disappointment at some time or another. So how do we deal with them? Well, sadly, probably with stringent self-analysis. When we first joined the vineyard over 20 years ago, Toby and I heard a talk by Don Williams, who is a prominent theologian and the brain behind the bulk of our statement of faith as a movement. He said something along these lines. Show me someone who says they're hurt and I'll show you a resentful person. Show me a resentful person and I'll show you a person who has not forgiven. Well, that felt like a punch in the throat. His point is obvious, I suppose. It is not possible to resent somebody you have forgiven. Try it. Honestly, I've tried it many times. It doesn't work. We can cling to our hurt and disappointment and wield them like a club with which to damage ourselves and others, or we can lay them down and ask God to help us. So maybe, actually, trust is the answer yet again. Do we believe that Jesus loves us enough to change the things about ourselves that cause us pain, the things that are rooted in self-loathing and self-destructiveness? Or are we content with the, well, it's just the way I am thing? My Bible says that all things are possible with God, Matthew 19, verse 26, even changing us if we let him. There is no proper healing and no lasting blessing if we deny Jesus' full access. Finally, and briefly, hindsight. Hindsight. As we've seen with the disciples, realising only later what had happened on this Palm Sunday. And uh, throughout the ensuing week, hindsight can make things wonderfully clear. The disciples finally grasped what was really going on. Jesus' rule and reign were forever, and potentially for all who accepted him. Not just for the people of Israel at that point in history. Unlike the disciples, of course, we have the whole story. But I sometimes think, knowing what happens later, that we can be a little dismissive of the disciples' lack of comprehension on this Palm Sunday, and in fact throughout the Gospels. It's easy to be knowing after the event. What we need to grasp is that even though we know that Jesus' victory is completed by his death on the cross and by his resurrection afterwards, we still live our lives not knowing what the future holds for us. The Danish philosopher and theologian Søren Kierkegaard said this, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior is just the beginning, the starting line, not the finishing line. We still have a race to run and a life to live, and we still need to trust Jesus to get us there. So we're not really that different from the confused and disbelieving disciples. I want to finish by quoting Philip Yancey again, who perfectly grasps the now and the not yet of kingdom life, which comes up, it would seem, all the time. Two days have earned names in the church calendar, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Yet in a real sense, we live on Saturday the day with no name. What the disciples experienced in small scale, three days in grief over one man who had died on a cross, we now live through on cosmic scale. Human history grinds on between the time of promise and fulfillment. Can we make something holy and beautiful and good out of a world that includes Bosnia and Rwanda This book was written in the mid-90s, so insert Syria and Iraq. It's Saturday on planet Earth. Will Sunday ever come? That dark Golgothan Friday can only be called good because of what happened on Easter Sunday. Easter opens a crack in a universe winding down towards disorder, uncertainty, and decay, sealing the promise that someday... God will enlarge the miracle of Easter to cosmic scale. It is a good thing to remember that we live out our days on Saturday, the in-between day with no name. God has promised, and we await the fulfillment. Shall we stand?